There's a lot to say when buying a new home or car, but only one thing to say that can help you protect them. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. And just like that, a State Farm agent will be there to help you choose the coverage you need, no matter where you are in life. When you need coverage options, your State Farm agent is there to help, on the phone or in person. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Nerdist Podcast number 833. Uh, this episode is Elijah Wood and Samuel Barnett. They're promoting Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency, uh, the Douglas Adams book, which is premiering Saturday, October 22nd at 9 p.m. on BBC America. Katie, what do you have on the Nerdist Community Corkboard? I got a really cool one. This guy, Brian Collin, wrote in that a couple weeks ago he started a regular streaming schedule on Twitch to show people how to make monsters. And he would love for people to watch. So far, he does them on Mondays at 9.30, Wednesdays at 1 p.m., and Saturdays at 9.30. And if you go to twitch.tv slash thebriancollin, uh, and that's C-O-L-I-N, and Brian is B-R-I-A-N, you can find it, and you can you can find everything. And it looks really cool. He just makes monsters on there, so that's pretty cool. And also, uh, you know, make sure to check out our other shows on the network, Chewing It. They just wrapped Super Troopers 2. They did a bunch of episodes on set with um, people from the movie with the rest of the Broken Lizard guys. So make sure to check that out. And also check out Bizarre States. Halloween's coming up. Everybody likes scary shit, so listen to it. <laughs> yeah, come on. Do You know, Katie's going to be really bummed if you don't listen to what she says, you guys. Do what Katie says. Yeah, please. Come on. As I said, uh, uh, Elijah Wood and Samuel Barnett, Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency, and uh, I'm excited about that show. I like Douglas Adams. It looks I'm great. I'm excited. It's BBC America used to work there. Good people. Very good people. And this is episode number 833, Elijah Wood, Samuel Barnett, Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency, BBC America, October 22nd, 9 p.m. Now entering Nerdist.com. Yes, it is. <gasps> Let's see. Look at this shininess. Wow. I'm getting one of those. Oh, that's very nice. Yes, yeah, it that's does. Very sexy. I'll tell you the. And the dual camera. Do you like? I do. I will tell you the main reason I <clears throat> enjoy it is that the pictures are stunning, and the pictures in low light are particularly really oh, really because they're terrible on this. So yes, yes, great. They're really. Shockingly good, I have oh, found. Nice. Wow. So, like when we went to Halloween Horror Nights, which is mostly in darkness, yes. it's impossible to take photos. It's there. impossible That's to right. take photos. We got a lot of, I got a lot of really good photos there because it just you get a lot of really good low light stuff. Oh, so, awesome. amazing. So, I recommend it, you guys. Mm. I want to get the matte black one. I think. Oh, you so want the matte I. black one? Yeah. Well, I'm torn between shiny and matte. I can't decide. Shiny, you know, I'm normally a matte black person. <laughs> so would this I. This time but I said, I'm, I'm going shiny. I know. I know, I'm saying that. I'm seeing doing it. <laughs> I'm going to make it happen this time. And I'm glad I did. Look at all that fingerprint. <laughs> that is a... Yeah. But then, you know, you get a phone and then you end up putting a case on it anyway. So exactly. It so it doesn't even matter. But we're not here to talk about phones. We're here to talk about you guys. How are things going? Things are good. Good. Things are really good. I got to thank you for the Shutter recommendation. Isn't it incredible? We joined right after you told me, and we still still watch movies on on Shutter. They're incredible. Have you seen anything lately that you're into? I haven't actually. I've been so busy. We we wrapped what a month and a half ago. Yeah. And then I ended up going to Austin for Fantastic Fest. So I saw a bunch of stuff at Fantastic Fest, but I haven't I haven't checked out Shutter in a while. 
Uh, and how was Fantastic Fest this year? It was great. I never get to go. I've you, been. You I've never been. been. I've never been. Oh shit! No, because it's always during work. Right. I can never get away. But can't you cover it though? Isn't there like Nerdist. something that you can you can make an excuse? Like I need to be there <laughs> to cover for Nerdist. For reasons. This is, this is a work thing. Yeah. I yeah. need. Don't ask. <laughs> All that's important is that you need to send me there yeah. because this is a work thing. Yeah. Um. Yeah. It's it 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 doesn't. It's very hard for me to. To Comedy Central doesn't want me to leave when we have to do shows. Right. No, I understand. And it's very hard to convince them to, like, we should just go shoot a show at Fantastic Fest. <laughs> That's what we really need to do, you guys. But, uh, yeah, I always want to go, and everyone always says it's amazing. It's the best. Yeah. What did really you see good. this year that you liked? Um, my, one of my favorite films was a three-hour German comedy called <laughs> Tony Erdman <laughs> that I highly recommend people see. Okay. Okay, it's, I'm I'm going to do that. It's about three hours. It's about um, a father and a daughter. The father uh, is divorced from her mother. The beginning of the movie kind of sets up the father character as an eccentric. And they go to uh, his daughter's birthday. She's in her early 30s. She's a businesswoman constantly traveling, very busy. And he asks her if she's happy. And it's very clear from her answer. She's trying to put on a face, but she's not. She ends up going to, I think somewhere in Eastern Europe for this business trip and he just shows up to like bring whimsy into her life <laughs> and make her life miserable and it's brilliant and heartbreaking and hilarious and it's three hours long. Oh my <laughs> three God. hours in German. In, so in German. So you're reading subtitles for three hours. Yeah, but it, I, I, it didn't, it felt like three hours but it didn't. Like it was never not entertaining and the character work is so great and the comedy in it is so brilliant a lot of it is situational. She has, she throws herself a birthday, <laughs> and she invites all these people from work over, and it's so painful. She's trying to put this dress on, and it's a dress that requires a zip in the back, <laughs> and she's got no one to help her, so she gets oh. a fork out to try and <laughs> do the zipper, but it, 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 it doesn't work. And she goes into her bedroom, and it's stuck, and she's trying. someone's knocking at the door, and she's trying to get the dress off to like change into another dress, and she decides, F it. I'm just going to answer the door in my panties. So she answers the door in her panties just out of desperation. <laughs> She's got no choice. And the person that, that, whom she answers the door is, a, is an employee uh, or a fellow colleague and is dutifully sort of shocked. And she just goes with it. <laughs> like, oh, that's what we're doing here. <laughs> in order to enter, you have to be, you have to be naked. <laughs> and, and it goes on for like 30 minutes. This well, in a three-hour movie, yes. Yeah. You've got time, I guess. Uh, it's brilliant. I loved it. There's another movie called Playground, which is a Polish film uh, that, that tracks three children, all kind of from different families that, that all sort of meet and converge at this school. So you get kind of an individual experience of each child at their home as they then get to school around the same timeline. And it tracks these children who ultimately inflict a great deal of violence onto another child. And it's sort of a... It's almost akin to Elephant. Have you seen Elephant? No. Elephant was a movie that was like a, an extrapolation on uh, the Columbine murders that followed mm. two kids. Kind of what if what would that be like if we followed the kids and tracked them through this? It's kind of like that. Okay. And the violence in it is so brutal and, and affecting. And it, yeah, that was one of my favorite films as well. But it, really intense. Well, so uh, so it was very upbeat for you. German comedies and... Uh, <laughs> Polish bullying movies. Uh, violent wow. playgrounds. I saw Arrival, yeah. too. Have you seen Arrival yet? No. God, oh, I, I like want to see that. I haven't Arrival's seen that. fantastic. A Monster Calls was incredible. Oh, oh my which God. Which is Bayana's new film. Have you heard of uh, Back to so the much. Future? <laughs> no, I'm sorry. <laughs> what now? <laughs> but you see, you must see a lot of films. Uh, well, we watch a lot of horror movies. Right. Lydia and I watch a ton of horror movies, uh, either on Shudder or just whatever just gets... Posted on iTunes, and uh, so I, st I still haven't seen the Blair Witch sequel. No, I haven't. That one I haven't seen yet either. We watch like really obscure ones. Boy, I guess I should probably watch some of the higher. <laughs> what, have, well, what have you seen? <laughs> we saw a movie last night called Lights Out, which was pretty interesting. Oh, right, based on the short film. Uh, yeah, exactly, based mm -hmm. on the short film, uh, and it was it was pretty good. And then on Shutter, we saw um, oh, uh, uh, Wakewood, mm. which was really interesting about a couple who loses their. They, this guy's a veterinar veterinarian, and, he, and it's a guy who plays uh, Littlefinger on uh, Game of Thrones. Oh, right, yeah. Mm. And uh, that's his name, right? Littlefinger? Yeah. Uh, 
Yes. And uh, so their their daughter dies, but they move to this village, and this village has this weird ritual where they can bring people back from the dead for three days, so you can mm-hmm. say your proper goodbye, and it just... And shit goes sideways. And uh, you're not supposed to do that. You're not supposed to do that. You can't. You're not supposed to fuck with nature. And uh, and that that movie was actually was actually pretty good. But I don't know if Blair Witch is available on. Uh, not yet. No. Because I think it only just came out. Only just back like home. Yeah. Three or four weeks. So you're ago. suggesting that we go to a movie theater to watch a movie? It's house radical. To watch I know, a movie? but it is a radical <laughs> idea. So leave our house and park somewhere. And I don't understand. How does that work? Sit with other people. Yeah. And have that's to, the best bit. <laughs> have to smell them uh, and be yeah. near them. Yeah, and, and hear people eating. No, oh, oh lovely. God, why would anyone want to do that? <laughs> How do you guys know each other? I don't know. Have we ever met? I don't think so. <laughs> no, we we just worked together for God. What was it? Four months. Four months in Vancouver on Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency. And is that how you guys met? Yeah, mm-hmm. we met on that. Oh, yeah. you met on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and then instantly hit it off. It's funny. We did a screen test. I I screen tested for my role with you in LA before I got the part, and I felt like we had really good chemistry. In the screen test, but I wasn't sure if I was just kind of bigging myself up and making that up, or if that was like a legitimate feeling. But it turns out it was real. Yeah, yeah I think we, I think we hit it off really well. Yeah, you can never sort of know through that yeah. process. It's a really, it's basically, it's a blind process. Yeah, because you can feel amazing about something, and then what do you mean they went with someone? Else? But it felt like it was so. Yeah, well, yeah, it's so yeah. true. They wanted a guy with pointier hair. Like it's always some sort Absolutely. of a weird, a weird thing. Yeah, that you can't. So uh, you went through the process. You actually you tested with people. I did mm-hmm. just a couple actually. Yeah, yeah. M- me and one other guy, I think, yeah. for the role in the end. Yeah, yeah. Was it a good room? I mean, like, was the room supportive? Very, good. very. It was, very. A, it was it a tiny. It felt more like a <laughs> like a workshop. Is is that what they yes. call it? That it that is exactly what they call it, and that is exactly what it yeah. felt like. Like we even had like a rehearsal. Yeah. For our final performance which workshop. seems so strange to me so odd because yeah we had that was very bizarre he came in it was an evening session yeah. which we then found out was a rehearsal for what was the actual screen test the next day but when it was the exact happen? same group of people and the exact and the, same scenes and, and, the ca- and, and a camera that yeah. was there the day prior so we were so puzzled like what did we do it was really odd it was funny please excuse the ignorance of this question if the answer is obvious to you uh <laughs> Is the British audition process and testing process television, is it similar in any way or is it a a completely different? It feels totally different to me. Like the whole screen testing thing that that I have done before and come over to LA and screen test Mm -hmm. for stuff and just not landed them until this one. um, I just don't feel like that happens in the same way back home. There are less people in the room back home. <laughs> right. When I walked into my first screen test before I tested with you um, for this, and there were about 10 to 12 people sitting there. Seriously? I was like, How? What? That is so unnecessary. So scary. Whereas back home, you'd have like four or five and at in that, most. And that, there's no consideration for the comfort of the individual walking into the room having to oh. be vulnerable <laughs> no. or be the character that is such an uncomfortable yeah. position to put somebody uh, in. And it was the tiniest, hottest room. Can't you watch? Can't the can't the you know ten executives watch it on on their computer <laughs> no, when they, they get the late? Can they have the decency later? to have like a like a, a one a two way mirror? Right. Or yes, something? right. Yes, you know, and we all know they're behind it, but we can pretend they're not. <laughs> all auditions yeah. in interrogation rooms. Yeah. Now. <laughs> there's really yeah. great. Someone posted. Um, there's a great subreddit called uh, Obscure Media, and someone posted. Crispin Glover's screen test from Back to the Future <gasps> and it's really crazy because wow. it's shot on a set almost like a sitcom style like he moves through a set Whoa. and I don't know who the dude who's reading with him but someone plays Marty and it's probably like a casting assistant or something but the scene feels like it's improvised where mm. it almost seems like they were just like just be George McFly and it's not funny at all like it's just a kind of a serious scene of Weird. Marty going yeah, Strickland really, oh, I remember him. You should follow the rules, Marty. You got to follow the <laughs> rules. And that's how you get ahead in life is following the rules. And it's just really, it just is like the saddest mm, scene. Yeah, but mm. uh, but he is totally George McFly in the scene. But it's wow. almost like, what if Back to the Future was a weird family drama and not right. at all a sci-fi comedy? It was just like a dark, that's exactly what it, that's exactly yeah. what it felt like. But the whole the whole audition process, I think, is... 
I feel like they're I almost feel like they make it harder because it's not like I mean when you are doing the thing when you're shooting Dirk mm. Gently it's probably not at all like the way it was in the audition scene it doesn't feel that unnatural it feels right. Very, yeah. so you're actually yeah. kind of auditioning under false circumstances I, you are yeah and I'm, I'm always amazed that they're able to see beyond that and actually cast the right person. Yeah. Given that those circumstances are so artificial and will never be replicated on a set. <laughs> no, no. Yeah, it is strange. It's a, it's a sort of an archaic process. Mm. But it's like if you can get through that pressure, you'll be totally fine on the shoot. Do you still have to audition for anything? Sure. You do? Yeah. What? what? I yeah. didn't know that. Come yeah. on. Yeah. What idiot makes you audition for anything? I think the thing Name the idiot really... right now. <laughs> In alphabetical order, what studios they work at. We're going to get to the bottom of this. I don't know. I think that there's a series of processes. I think independent films are largely uncast, and those things, I've, I, I'll have offers for, for smaller films. Bigger films tend to actually be cast ahead of time. You know, if, if a director has their vision, they oftentimes know exactly who they want and they kind of mm. precast the film. Yeah. And then things that really matter that are quite big and significant, I still have to audition for those things. I guess people want to... Which is fine. Yeah, I mean, ultimately... I guess people want to hear you read. They just want to... They might have the idea that you're right for it, but they just have to hear you. Yeah. And I also think it's... I don't know. There's something good... Uh, uh, there's a good feeling attributed to having to work for something yeah yeah you know that's true do you do you have uh you must have like weird director lunches i was like go sit go talk to this director just talk about the script i've had those sure do those amount to anything or is it just yeah we just had a weird lunch it's <laughs> oh, it's we they amount to something if it's about a specific project if it's not if it's kind of a general meeting that's weird and I've had a few of those. Generals are very strange. I've had generals, and I honestly can't say that they've ever led to anything. It might be kind of tangential or indirect, but it never feels like they've ever led to anything directly. I guess it's just sort of a... Uh, yeah, they just... I guess they want to see if... I think in some cases they probably just want to meet you. They yeah, just sometimes. want to meet you yeah. and just see, you know. Yeah. I have this movie, but here's ten Lord of the Rings questions. You know, like. <laughs> The movie I'm writing is about a guy who really loves Lord of the Rings, so he wants to know. I have had a meeting with a producer, because uh, I have this production company called SpectreVision, and we produce genre films, and we had a meeting with a producer about some specific project that we m might get together to, to produce together. Uh, and at the end of this conversation about this project, we're all saying goodbye, we're at like a wine bar. We go outside, and he's like, um, can, can you wait one second? And he pulls out a giant Lord of the Rings no. poster and asks me to sign it. Which I was like, this is a bit... <laughs> the context for this is a bit strange. Oh, this professional wow. meeting that we're having about a project. And did you sign it? I did, yeah. Oh, that's so nice. Yeah, of course. <laughs> I've been... Uh, pretty funny. I'm, I'm about to stalk... I'm about to stalk Quentin Tarantino because he did the podcast last year. Did he? And I didn't have our guest book for him to sign. And he's the only person who hasn't signed it in the last, like, three years. Oh. And the completionist part of my brain is obsessing over the fact that You he, need that. You've got to get him. But, you know, now I'm starting to picture my... I, I kind of walked through, like, calling his assistant and going, like, Hey, it's Chris Hardwick. You know, a year ago... And, that, like, and there's, no <laughs> there's no dialogue that I've been able to write in my head that does not make me sound insane. <laughs> <laughs> You might just have to go with that. I mean, <laughs> I just wanted to say that. Can you say it? Like, I was even trying to concoct. I almost tried to concoct that exact thing. Like, is there a reason I'd need to meet with him? And then at the end, go, oh, I just, I remembered I brought this thing and it's not, you know. Now that I've said it on the podcast, I've you can't do dashed that. All, of those, yeah. uh, all of those hopes. But, or uh, you've increased the odds. <laughs> yes. I don't know. Maybe, don't know. He'll, be, maybe he'll be kind. Did you have a great conversation with him? We did. He was great. Is there anything that you feel obsessive about that you would be equally ashamed to admit as I have just been ashamed to admit in public? <laughs> Come on. Well, there's something. I don't know. I have a really obsessive mind, full stop. So, I don't know. I obsess about everything. Obsessed slash worry. Yes. Yeah. So Do you think that hmm. do you think that that's just part of the performer's brain or do you feel like it's a coincidence that most performers are kind of obsessive? <laughs> 
I don't. I well, I don't believe in the whole tortured genius thing particularly. Mm. I don't feel like you have to be insane to be brilliant. Right. I think you might be brilliant and happen to be insane, <laughs> and that maybe if you got better from being insane, you might be even more brilliant. It's possible. So um, I don't know. I don't know. I, but but I think there is a really high proportion of performers and actors who are obsessive and I kind of love, worry and neurotic. That's interesting. I love hearing I love hearing someone speak out against the tortured genius archetype. It's probably because I'm not a genius. It's... I mean, maybe if I was a genius and, and tortured, I'd be like, yeah, you have to be tortured to be a genius. But I, I don't know. I just I just feel like the more, maybe the more well you get in yourself, the more access you have to yourself and the better you can be. Who knows? That's, mm. Do you think if you're a genius, you would know it, though? Or do you think you would not know it? Kanye seems to know. He seems 100% <laughs> really convinced. <laughs> He seems very sure. He seems, okay, so he knows. Does not well, seem to be one. a shadow of a doubt in his no, mind. No, no doubt. <laughs> it's, it's, hey, Kanye, is the is the verdict out on you? Still, no, it's not. Okay, good. It's, it's in. <laughs> and it's uh, unanimous. You feel that you're a genius. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I guess. I mean, yeah, he, I mean, did did John Lennon know he was a genius? Do yeah, uh, did Einstein know he was a genius? I Can mean, you it, be self aware and be a genius? Because I think to sometimes. The notion of being that self-aware is could be a distraction mm. from, mm. from what your particular kind of genius is. Yeah. It, it, to me, it would seem like the your ego would get in the yeah. way of it might be a block. your progress. Yeah, or your, your ability to fulfill whatever it is that you're brilliant at. And also, maybe it's other people who put the genius thing on you. Maybe That's you don't. Maybe you don't grow is. up thinking. Yeah, so Professor clever. Hawking. Yeah, because I think it <laughs> okay, would genuinely. Because I think <laughs> you need a certain amount of humility. Yeah. Well, I mean, look at. Well, Steve Jobs was quite. He he was an egoist to a certain degree, but he also worked really hard. Yeah. He's a rare case of someone who really did espouse. He was. He would reference himself as being brilliant to a certain degree, but he also just worked really hard and made other people work hard. But I do think that if you are overly self-aware, that would just inevitably get in, in your own way. And then you couldn't I, – I think, yeah, because if you think you've hit the pinnacle of your – yeah. What keeps you striving? Yeah. Exactly, exactly, yeah. exactly. Or how do you know – exactly. How do you know to keep pushing limits if you feel like, well, I guess I pushed every limit there is. Yeah, I'm a genius. So I'm a genius. Nothing <laughs> more to do. <laughs> what, what do I do now? I'm done. Yeah. 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 Tea or you know, watch a little Netflix? I don't know like what happens at that point. And would you want – because I, I, I'm, I, I think there's an interesting idea behind the torture genius idea. Would you want to be considered a genius if it also meant you could never really be happy or you could never really feel stable or, you know, like, would you want that along no, with it? I'd rather be happy. Yeah. Than right. <laughs> yeah, I also don't know that genius is something I've ever wanted to aspire to. No. I, I, I'm, no. In, I'm in an admiration of those who, who have that. But I don't think I would want to be a genius because I think I think it's also isolating. Yeah. Aside from the the tortured aspect, I think part of why they're tortured is because of how isolating being that brilliant at whatever it is that you're brilliant Mm -hmm. at is. And it is an ego pursuit because, like you said, a genius is something that other people put on you. So if you're striving to have other people put something on you, then you're doing it for them, and you're not doing it for you know you're not pursuing your work Mm -hmm. for you. I think surely balance is the best thing. You can be extremely talented and brilliant at something, which might make you a genius, but you want to be a kind of happy human being, right? Mm-hmm. I think that I think a lot. Of, I honestly think a lot of people forget that's the goal because <laughs> I think you know people get so caught up in things that they think are going to make them happy or things that are going to fix them rather than going, oh, what if I w- was just happy? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I need that thing to make me happy, so I got to go for that thing. Now I have that thing, but I'm not happy, mm-hmm. so I got to get another thing. Yeah, it's a it's a constant. Uh... Well, and I think that the 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 issue with that is that people are they're confused by the notion of the pursuit of happiness. Right. Mm. I don't think happiness is a pursuit. Mm. It's it's a it is a uh, it is a reaction to the way you live your life. You're going to be unhappy and you're going to be happy. Yeah. There's no such thing as being consistently happy or reaching your perfect level of life you're always evolving it's happiness comes from from feeding yourself and also how you treat other people Mm. that's very true and how much you're contributing to whatever it is you know that is important to you or contributing to something that's 
bigger than yourself. Which is a certain amount of selflessness. Mm -hmm. I think that makes you happy. Mm -hmm. That's why I do comedy, because I'm contributing. (laughs) You fucking asshole. (laughs) But I think people get, they they get off on the wrong track, because they're looking for happiness. Right. Yeah. Agreed. Instead of just Happiness being, is which is just, just a fluctuating be. state Work of being. on yourself, mm-hmm. and you'll be happier, mm. ultimately. You know, happiness shouldn't involve an action verb. It should involve a being verb. Thank you. Credits. Thank you. <laughs> Drop that mic right now. <laughs> oh. oh, oh, and you did. It didn't really work well. Did it with break? The... <laughs> no one ever drops a mic in a mic stand. No. <laughs> That's the problem is you're supposed to drop a mic. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you're James Brown, where it like yes. drops and then comes and back, back up again because yeah. he could do that. Yeah, and then a guy throws a coat over you, right? And then you throw it off and then jump back and continue to perform. <laughs> That's right. Do you? I mean, DJing is to some degree a. I mean, it is a live performance, but is there a performer aspect to it? I mean, like, do you feel like I? You don't feel like you're performing at all when you're doing it. Uh, ooh, I mean, I don't feel like it feels like a performance. Yes. Especially in that feeling of standing backstage, I've often felt like I'm in a band or something. Mm. I I play a lot in Europe, and I have done over the last couple of years, and we'll play at music venues. So we'll be backstage in the sort of green room area like you would be if you were in a band before going on stage. So I get that feeling, Mm -hmm. that feeling of like, it's showtime, now we're going on stage to perform. But... It doesn't feel like a performance uh, in any other sense. I mean, I'm just playing records. But it's definitely you providing entertainment, though, isn't it, to other people? Yeah, but there's no outward performative element to it. Right. You know, there's no... There's uh, not like a dead uh, mouse head. There's no show. Yeah. Yeah, there's no costume. (laughs) Uh, There are no dance moves. You don't wear a costume. Um, I don't. I think you should start wearing costumes. Should I? Yeah. Definitely. <laughs> but it's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's performative in the sense that we are curating music for people to dance to. Right. Um, and to a certain degree, dancing and enjoying ourselves in the process. And is that, what do you think is the real, what's the pulp of it for you? Is it just... I'm entertaining people who are going to have a good time. Is there any aspect of, like, I can control these people's emotional experience for the next, you know, hour, two hours, based on how I kind of create this musical arc? I think there's a, it's a series of things. It's uh, There's a very visceral hearing music you love played at a very loud volume. So there's something very... Uh, selfish in a way about it. It, it, it you have a box of records all things that you're excited about and being able to play those things at a loud volume is is very gratifying mm-hmm. and then there's the reaction that you get from people and seeing how over the course of a night you can kind of build people up and take them down and build them back up again and that is very satisfying as well because there there's it's a symbiotic relationship there's a kind of a communication happening as you react to how they're reacting then changes potentially what you're going to play to keep the rest of the night going. And if you get people going at a certain sort of speed and they're really digging it and dancing, that then inspires you to keep that thing going. And you play everything on vinyl? Do you do mm-hmm. all the vinyl? Yeah, all records. It is funny to me that vinyl is the thing that I was going to get a record player and I looked, my eyes would get a record player. Mm-hmm. They're surprisingly expensive for a record. Like the, the <laughs> good this, ones, yeah. The good ones are this, yeah. this, uh, this like resurgence of vinyl over the last you know handful of years is is really interesting because it is the most analog thing mm-hmm. in a digital world. And do you think that's part of it? Is that it, it's because you know they're basically breakable wave files? I mean, do you think it's, <laughs> <laughs> do you think there's something about? You know, it's the same people who will always choose to hold a book in their hand or hold a newspaper in their hand. Is it, I think it, it's connected to that to a certain degree and that it, it's physical, it's real, it's tactile. You like the sound of – the specific sound that a record makes. I do. Yeah, I do. And playing records versus – I'd played digitally before for years just for fun. Playing vinyl is different because some, things can go wrong. Yeah. The hmm. turntables can break down. There can be feedback. Um, it, it's not – perfect and so it requires a certain level of being super attentive a hundred percent of the time you can't just press a button and and everything works perfectly right and i love that i love that things can go wrong you're on your toes constantly you're constantly working 
you're looking through your record bag of what's gonna you know what you're gonna play next. That record's now skipping. I've got to <laughs> I've got to transition to another record quickly. There's something. Um, yeah, there's something ephemeral about it that that can change in a moment's notice, and every night's different as a result of that. Making, G- given the scenario and the variables that you're dealing with, making in the moment art out of imperfections. You know what that sounds like? Sounds like genius. genius. <laughs> oh, I like that reincorporation there. Brilliant. No, but it is. But I, I love that idea too, and it's it's one of the reasons why I love stand up is because. You have to be in the moment to yep. do it, and and something, and, and usually when stuff goes wrong, I mean unless it goes horribly wrong, but usually when stuff goes wrong, that's the best stuff. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, are you when you guys are doing Dirk Gently, or is it very scripted? Are you guys fucking around a lot? Are you looking for imperfections? Are you looking for ways to create in the moment stuff that's not on the page? I think so. Like, I think Definitely. actually looking for imperfections is a really good way of putting it because mm-hmm. that's when it gets a little bit exciting. I mean, it's different. I feel like on stage, certainly, because I've done a lot of theatre and that thing of when it goes wrong in the moment is when you can save it or break it or yeah. make it really exciting or do mm-hmm. something. It is a little different on camera. It goes wrong, you can cut, you can do it again, or it goes wrong and something really exciting comes out of it. Mm-hmm. So, I think the pursuit of perfection is dumb. Yeah, it is. Because it is. It, I feel like it makes you make unnatural choices for this weird ideal that doesn't really exist like mm. you know and i feel like across every sector of like people's looks have to be quote unquote perfect or mm. their mm. this thing this job has to be perfect but what does any of that mean mm. what is it what does it mean to yeah. be perfect because it's just this idea that someone's got set up in their head of what something's going to be and it doesn't exist and it's, it's also the perfect's also the most boring mm. completely it, boring mm. Yeah, and the pursuit of perfection <clears throat> is also this thing of what is – perfection is different to every single person. Mm. It should be about how, pursuit of, of truth for you, what you feel is is going to make that special and how it's going to fulfill you. Those should be the important tenets, not perfection. And I agree the notion of perfection is boring. Mm. It, it's, it, it's essentially without blemish. It's without – it's without imperfections. Imperfections are beautiful. If you listen to a recording from the 1920s, those are beautiful because it's literally like a, a primitive microphone and a shitty, you know, primitive recording device capturing a, a human moment. Mm. Uh, nothing perfect about it at all. But my God, what comes through the other side is extraordinary and can't be replicated. Yeah, and and, and if they were trying to strive for perfection. If you clean that up with modern technology, suddenly the heart and the soul is removed it's, from it. Yeah, thing. absolutely. Mm-hmm. It's not human. Perfection isn't human. And it also – perfection mm-hmm. is, again, other people's ideas. Like you're trying to live what other people's mm-hmm. ideas right. might be about mm-hmm. what's perfect. So how do you know when – like what is – what do you follow? Because I feel like you need some sort of a path to follow to get better, to evolve. Mm-hmm. So what is what is that path? Like what are the daily – you know, like what choices do you make to strive for to get better at, you know, whatever your craft is? It's interesting. It's so much about it's so much about being in the moment, isn't it? It's so much about being present. Yeah. If you can if you can strive to be present, then everything that comes along is a surprise and was probably exactly what was meant to happen. But if you can't do that, you're just blocked mm. and locked down into some idea of what you think you're meant to do or what you're trying to guess other people think you're meant to do. Right. So you're in everyone else's thinking the whole time. And actually one of the things um, I loved working with you is you're incredibly present, like in a scene that you're just so there and willing to just bounce off whatever comes. And I think that's one of the things that, that hopefully I think comes across. They were, they were the most exciting moments for me on, on set i remember certain scenes there was that one in the woods episode five where we're like todd and dirk are bonding Uh, remember that day well and um but there was a moment where like just the end of the scene just felt interesting because i was about to use the word perfect but it felt (laughs) but it felt perfect because it felt like it was so unexpected what came out it was like we had reached what was in the script and Mm. so often i feel i fall short of was actually on the page mm. but suddenly it was like just this moment happened and there were a few of those for me where i was just like yes where you kind of hit a groove yeah you just hit you're something not thinking and it, about it and yeah it and you're not watching of... yourself and you're not mm. judging yourself and it mm. just kind of flows out mm. and and actually 
who knows what that even looks like? Because like we were saying earlier, sometimes things can feel amazing. And actually, they look shit. They just feel amazing. <laughs> but, I think, but I think there was that beautiful that moment of... True. But like, there were some moments where it genuinely felt like this real connection that mm. was going on mm. that just worked with everything around us that was being filmed. And I think there's some really great stuff. Yeah. That's what's so challenging, I would imagine, about theater is like, yeah, you know, you can sort of, you, you rehearse and then the first couple performances, everyone's in the moment. Cause it, but then you get on autopilot. It's like, yeah. you know, how, yeah. is, how is performance 60 yeah. in the moment when you've done it that many times and everyone, you know, wants to go home because they're tired of saying the same words. Yeah. So how do you, you know, how do you find, I guess engineer is bad, a bad word, but how do you, how do you create that in the moment connection when you know when you've done something so many times before i mean i have had practice at this because i've done i tend to do long runs of shows which which in a way is a good thing because it means they've done well they've been successful people want to watch them so so it's a good thing but i think what i think what we miss in rehearsal is the missing character is always the audience Mm. so that's the one way of really um freshening up something that might feel stale is having that connection with the audience but also again it's totally about being present so if i'm on autopilot then i'm just not there mm-hmm. and it's not going to work and i will and i will come off stage feeling dissatisfied and feeling like i haven't done my job properly even if the show went well even if <clears throat> the show went well and that's why everything is so subjective because Actually, sometimes I can have an autopilot show, and that might be the best one. So I don't know. Right. I am not right. the one. I am just not the one to say. Do you know what I mean? It's all about right. other people's perception. I'm the worst one to judge my own work. And how you feel is not always equ- cannot cannot so always be equated to how it's especially it is perceived. not my feelings. Like how I feel, it's like I've I've no I've no idea. I I can feel that something is appalling, and then actually watch it back and go, that was pretty good mm. why did that feel so bad so i don't know so i guess ignore yourself yeah <laughs> totally but it is about that isn't it it's about getting yourself out of the way yeah it is. The time. that's getting the ego out of the way that's yeah. getting the ego out of the way which is the i think our, a constant struggle for all human pursuits is how do Definitely. you get that how do you get that ego out of the yeah, way sure because it it basically it wants you to feel good in any moment it wants you to feel like you're the best in any moment and it will push you to pursue that, which is, mm. you know, mostly an empty, an empty It's pursuit. a bottomless pit. Yeah. It's never enough. It will never be enough for it, the ego. It doesn't so matter like, how much money you have, how many awards you have, how many people tell you. It's like, it'll still, oh, but, but that guy, <laughs> fuck yeah. that guy's guy, he's got it figured out. And that guy's going, fuck, I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I really yeah. Don't. I mean, I, I, with the exception of maybe, I wonder if George Clooney goes home at night and goes, I don't know what I'm fucking doing. No, George doesn't. Not George. <laughs> He's one of the few people that does not. But I think I think most people are I think and that's that's really comforting to know that most people are in that same in that same boat. I think so. What do you feel most do you feel most comfortable acting in film on stage? What what do you feel most comfortable doing, even if it's not acting? What do you what makes you feel most like you? That's a great question. It's a brilliant question. And you know what? I um because we, because I was, we were in Vancouver for four mm. months. So I was away from, you know, my partner, my friends, my family. I live in London, and we own our our apartment. Like that's, it's taken me years to feel at home in London and mm. to feel settled, and then to be away from that for four months was really interesting because I felt like anchorless. Mm-hmm. And then I've been back for about six weeks or something. That's where I'm most comfortable. I'm just at home. I felt most myself. I I got back and saw friends and saw my partner and went and saw my little niece who's two years old and just kind of, I don't know, there's something about having your core. I just, I did. That's that's a brilliant way of putting it. I totally got back to my core and it made me realize how sort of kind of a bit free floating I'd felt being away for that long. Hmm. What about you? I feel like, wow. I feel like I feel like my most myself a great question. I don't think I've ever asked myself that question <laughs> or has it ever been asked of me, but I I mean it isn't necessarily specifically acting. I think it's just being in creative environments, working with other people. Um, what I get out of the process is certainly the connection that we share and mm. and those moments creatively, but I also love the entire process and I love 
a creative team working towards something together that they believe in. More often than not, you really get that in smaller films mm-hmm. um, where the, the unit of production is much smaller and, and it tends to unify people more clearly. But that is my favorite part of this creative world that we exist in, making something, particularly films, that we care about. So I suppose it's probably a combination of that uh, and being with my family and friends. Um, but it's weird. I never, I don't think I ever don't feel like myself, if mm. that makes sense. Sure. Do you know what I mean? I don't know that really, there's a, really I don't great. know that there's a place that I mm. need to be. I, uh, that is, is getting back to my core. Cause I feel like I'm always aware of, of but that's amazing, my internal life. And even if I'm away from home, making that my home and get mm. it. and part part of that's maybe just years of traveling and getting used to being away from home but it's also but. part of who you are because it means that you are connected with yourself because i because i agree i think there is you know this job involves a lot of travel if you're lucky to mm. have a and lot it of travel like that very uprooting I suppose. it can but i <laughs> hello, 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 hello. <laughs> <laughs> there's a what <laughs> old timey phone <laughs> take that mr hitler <laughs> <laughs> Um, God, I was being so intense. Thank God the phone no, rang. That's what, no, um, God, wanking on. Um, no, but I, I think like there, there has to be a way of essentially what you're saying, which is staying rooted and connected in yourself, no matter where you are, mm. so that you, so that you feel that kind of um, groundedness, no matter where you are. And yeah. that's something I have to work on. And it's definitely something I find easier when I have the people around me that I just love. But, uh, but also creatively, just to add to that. I think where I'm most comfortable creatively is when there's collaboration because I am not an actor who can just do it on his own. Right. I'm only as good as the people I'm working with and that's where, whether that's the actors, the crew, anyone. And also I need a director. Otherwise I could do it myself and I can't. So <laughs> I just, I love the collaboration. That is safe. when I feel the most safe and kind of, that's when I feel safe to just be totally vulnerable. And also you discover different shades of yourself when you're collaborating because, you know, obviously there's different chemistry that's created mm. when you're working with different groups of people. And yeah. It's going to pull different parts of your personality yeah. out to sort of contribute to whatever that situation is. Yeah, I, I hate, like, sitting and writing alone. Mm. Fucking hate it. It's, oh, it just, I just don't feels, know how you do that. <laughs> no, I don't do it well. Like, I, I like being in a room and I like kicking ideas around and, mm-hmm. you know, like, everyone sort of dogpiling ideas on top of one another. Uh but yeah, that idea of again—that's sort of the tortured. Like, I just need—I just need to go to a cabin. <laughs> and, you know, that's fine. I'm the type of person that just right. needs to go, go to, to a, a cabin. cabin. Go to a cabin. <laughs> yeah. But I—I I am super energized by uh, by other people and what everyone together sort of Voltrons, you know, to to, to create. Yeah. And that. So, how many different things are is your company working on at the moment? Oh God, we've got, I think. In varying stages of development, probably five or six films. Oh, wow. Yeah. We've just wrapped a film that we're in post on called Bitch. Um, and then we've got, I think, Love two it. or three Love films <laughs> that, that we're starting next year. So That's awesome. Yeah, it is. It's great. And that's the other... I mean, that company's six years old now. And that's been so gratifying to... Thinking about schools? What's that? Oh, I was just making a joke. <laughs> so, yeah, we are. Six we are. years old. I'm sorry. <laughs> do you live, do you live in the right derailed. place? That was, was, no, it was perfect. The second I said it, but like something in the back, the tail end of that thought was, it's not worth it. Uh, it was good. <laughs> um, I'm so sorry. No, but what's gratifying about it is that, you know, I, I can go away and work on something as an actor like Dirk, but this process is ever... It, Continuing, We're constantly working on something. So in my free time, I have this great creative outlet that sort of never goes away. It's wonderful. Yeah. And then, you know, when you need something super in the moment, you could go uh, to Europe and DJ. Mm. Right. God, I always... I remember going to raves... Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was in when I was in college and where it was just like you'd watch like dudes three and four turntables just it was fucking incredible yeah, yeah, and yeah. I never did any of the drugs that were associated with the rave scene um, 
so first of all, it was very loud. Uh, and but second of all, there I, there really was an incredible amount of skill. And I mean, I know especially those guys that are that are probably turntablists, right? Where they're scratching and do yes, they're scratching, right. and it's like. One record is the bass line of, and this is the melody, and then over here there's like a rhythm section. I mean, it's like oh, there's so, so much skill. Boy, I really wish I had the tolerance to go out anymore and see stuff. Yeah, I just don't. I just don't. Do you yeah. still just go out? Do you just go out occasionally? But I, I also have a bit of an old man in me. I think I like being home. Yeah, me too. God, me too. And I do enough. Honestly, <laughs> I do. I do enough. <laughs> I'm fortunate enough to travel a lot and work really hard. And so when I'm when I have my time, my free time, more often than not I'd like to stay home and watch a movie or mm-hmm. you know, hang out with friends. The idea of going out all the time, I kind of left that behind and honestly, it was never really my thing. Even when I was 18, 19, 20, early 20s, which is the time that you're supposed to hit it really hard and go out all the time, I was put off by crowded bars and clubs like i just never liked any of it going to see live music i love and i still love that you know i missed radiohead when they were in oh they were so good did you see i did saw them at the shrine god damn it fuck i finally listened to the album (laughs) i'm in shape pool i was i was saying for four four months months, i'm gonna listen to it i'm gonna listen to it and i did i come into work you did did it as you planned as you planned and yeah it's extraordinary isn't it yeah 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 the rate the Radiohead, I don't know why, I have a very specific relationship to that band where I always have to listen to an album like 10 times mm. to get the, to find the, whatever the groove, whatever it is that Tom's laying down. But it always takes me several times to find, to hook into every song. Mm-hmm. And I am now at that place with Moonshake Pool. I've just been listening to it. But they were. So, I mean, I've seen them a lot. Me too. And I think this last performance was the best I've ever seen them as a band. Wow. I mean, like, you know, I've seen them. I mean, they always put on a good show, I think. I think they always put oh, on I a agree. good show. Oh, I agree, yeah. But I've seen them sloppier, or, to- or Tom's voice has been a little shot. But this time, they were just, they were firing on all cylinders. Everyone was spectacular. Oh, that's incredible. Yeah. Do you know them? I've met them. Yeah, you have. Yeah. Oh man, I don't know them. <laughs> Come on, I don't know them. I bet but I've you, met them. I bet if I if, if we had met Tommy Rico, do you know Elijah Wood? You go. Of course I do. <laughs> <laughs> We've actually DJed around each other a couple of times. You've totally got him in your phone. <laughs> I, t- I do not. I do not. If I type th into <laughs> your contacts, <laughs> hey Tom York is going to come up in your contacts. I don't. But those guys are amazing. They're incredible. Now, they're an interesting uh, – there's sort of an interesting case study in – This actually dovetails pretty well into our discussion about sort of what the pursuit should be yes. and the notion of perfection, mm. actually. Yes, because I – you know, th- there are a couple things – you know, knowing that Tom kind of has a an obsession with keyboards and different keyboard sounds and mm-hmm. digital sounds and, you know, you just – you hear things on the tracks where you're like, oh, that's – what mostly sometimes you listen to music, you can really kind of map back. Oh, I see why they put this in. Mm. A lot of stuff with Radiohead, I'm like, I don't know why they thought to add that there. Like, mm-hmm. what a weird sort of a mm-hmm. like. That's a band that I feel like is really playing with imperfections mm-hmm. and mm. and putting them in places where it's almost almost too imperfect, but then just at the last second, it completely makes sense. Mm. But when you try, when you go back and they were just like a guitar rock band, like they could have been any '90s guitar rock band when they started. Yes, yeah. Uh, Pablo Honey's like oh, it's a guitar, they're guitar rock. Yep. What was it about them in particular that made like what generated OK Computer? Was mm. it, you know, um, oh we want to make a commentary on where we're going in this digital age, and then each album, how do you keep, how do you give your audience what? they would expect and how do you give them what they wouldn't expect at the same time how do you do that i think the secret to their success and not success uh in regards to fans and monetary success but rather artistic success is that i don't think they ever overly considered their audience Hmm. i think that they were always in i think they were Mm. always in pursuit of besting themselves constantly i listened to an interview maybe that's what geniuses do (laughs) maybe it is though you're right there's something in that where you where you are so it's what you are not doing it for anyone else but yourself it's for you and for your art yeah that's it 
And I think that's the key to them. You know, how they got from Pablo Honey to the Bends. I just listened to an interview with Ed O'Brien where he spoke specifically, sp- specifically to that, which was basically that they were labeled essentially as a one-hit wonder off of that record <laughs> because of Creep. Right. And they were like, oh, no, 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 no. We're, we're not that. We've got to challenge ourselves. And this is not the best that we can do. And we can do better than this. And they made the Bends. And they're, the, he said – and it's so simple – and it doesn't necessarily break down the equation because I suppose any band could make this approach and not have the same <laughs> results. But he basically said we wanted to make an album where every single song was the best song on the record or every single song was uh, a single. Mm. And he's like, we'd failed. The Benz doesn't have – not every song is a single, but that pursuit – made that their strongest record. And then from there on out, it, it also became about deconstruction. And I think that's really important in art as well. If something's working, to not just keep plugging away at the same thing, but to deconstruct it and to constantly create new challenges for yourself mm. so that you're out of your comfort zone. And that can be applied to any art. I feel that way as an actor. Yeah, definitely. I feel that way as someone who plays records, any number of mm. those things. Taking yourself out of your comfort zone instantly puts you into this place of having to strive and yeah. work. And those, those sometimes self-imposed challenges is what makes you good eventually. Right. You know what I mean? So true. Absolutely, because that's where you... You grow the most during periods of discomfort. Yep. And you don't grow that much when you're super comfortable mm-hmm. <laughs> because you just don't feel totally. like you just don't feel like you need to. And mm-hmm. that that band has talked about it a lot too, where they would have a song, and it's really interesting to look at it as an outsider. There's a great documentary called "Meeting People Is Easily yeah. Easy," mm-hmm. which is about their tour for OK Computer, and in it you can see them working on songs. One of which is a song called "Man of War." Now, "Man of War" is like heavily bootleg. They've played it live. Great song. They've never put it on a record. And you see them working on it, and you're like, oh, that's great. That's going to be incredible. But their litmus for their own material is so intense that they scrap it every time. So they literally will scrap things that objectively, from our perspective, we would probably like or would be in the key of Radiohead or would be something we'd expect from them. But they, they want to subvert that at every step of... Yeah. And, and also, that's fascinating. And they also, could so easily make another OK Computer, but they don't. They make Kid A. And they're like, fuck mm. this. We're going to make a record with keyboards, and we're, it's going to be a weird Krautrock record. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Well, I also think there's something attractive about the fact that you really get the sense that they don't need you. <laughs> right. Oh, and that just makes makes us want them even more. Of course it does. <laughs> right. Of course it does, because you sort of... Because, yeah, there, I think there's something on a very deep biological level. If someone needs you, it's like, what's wrong with your genes? You must be flawed if you need me. But mm. if someone doesn't need you, it's like, oh, I think I need your mm. DNA. You know, mm. I, I need whatever you have. What mm. You have some sort of a secret. Mm. But I feel like you can't engineer that. You can't fake that. Like, you really no. just... You know, you can't be like, hey, guys, does everyone hear me? I don't need you. You know, like, it doesn't really. Just to make sure everyone over there, can you let that guy know? I don't need him. I don't need him. I don't need you, sir. I don't know who you are, but I don't need you. Uh, like, that's that's different than legitimately not, you know, like, and I almost feel like there's a certain amount of narcissism that's involved in the idea of genius that you would think my own idea is so important for me to pursue and sort of fuck everyone And else. superior to somebody else's. Mm. Yeah, right. yeah, exactly. Mm. Unless they don't, I mean, again, I don't. I've only ever met – I met Tom York one time, and it was a really bad experience. Uh, and so oh, I don't no. know. Well, it was, it was a long time ago. It was, it was 1995. I was working at K-Rock, and I was supposed to – I was at the Acoustic Christmas show. Oh, God, and, right. You worked at K-Rock? I did, yeah, for, wow. from 95 to 98. And, uh, and I was backstage, and, and someone was supposed to interview them from K-Rock, and they kind of blew them off. Mm-hmm. This was right after Creep blew up. And they were like, hey, Chris, do you want to interview Radiohead? And I was like, yeah, I love Radiohead. And I walked over, and I, all I said to them was like, hey, nice to meet you. And Tom York stood up and goes, this interview's over. And then he left. Uh, and then oh, I don't know no. what happened. I don't know why he was upset. And I ran into him later that night, and I was like, I don't know what happened, but I'm really sorry. And he just wasn't in the mood for it. So, uh, so I, But they've still always been, you know, in spite of, in spite of that fact. Mm. And for years it tortured me. I would just hear, this interview's over in my head. Oh, 
gutted. Gutted. Yeah. 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 That's awful. That, that was my. Leaked. That was the thing mm. that would play in my head when I would mm. uh, fail at something. Really this interview's, this interview's over. over. Yeah. Oh god. But still, 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 still love love that band. But I also. But I do wonder if there's a certain amount of. You know, if it's like, you know, you mentioned Kanye, who is, you know, like he's amazing at what he does. Mm. I don't think there's any question about his narcissism. Not at all. (laughs) Not at all. And I love Kanye, but sometimes I think talking about yourself and talking about your art gets in the way of your art. Mm. I would love... Because I think that that Life of Pablo record is interesting. I think it's flawed, but there's a lot of really great ideas. I would have loved to have heard that record in a vacuum rather than being told how brilliant it is before it came out. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> but I and also I, wonder... And, I, and I, I think artists get in their way. Now, granted, there's something... Maybe there's a meta art to that that's kind of fascinating. Like, the whole Madison Square Garden, the first time he plays the record is in, is in front of a crowd of 3,000 people off of someone's c- computer. That, that We live in that world? That's amazing. Yeah, mm-hmm. I just... I, but and I also weird wonder, and, like... I also wonder if there's something about the subculture of, of hip-hop that when you sort of go back and trace, you know, a lot of the music, a lot of the messaging was... You know, look at how amazing I am. Look at all these yeah. things I have. Look it how has much been. money I have. No, look totally. how much. Look how huge my posturing. Dick is. Look it's how, all it's posturing. a lot of posturing, and so yeah. I wonder if there's some conditioning. But I mean, there's no question that he right, but right, but you don't see Kendrick Lamar doing the same. No, thing. that's true. That's true. Kendrick just put out a record that fucking slayed. Yeah. Hmm. So yeah, you don't need it. You don't. You don't need it. But it, all I'm saying is, I wish Tom York would Kanye sing about how pass. big his dick is. Should we not? <laughs> Can we please? <laughs> Maybe that's an okay computer. Okay, computer. I know my dick is big. Okay, computer. Take it down a notch. Yeah, I get it. It's big. Elijah, I think you should text him and tell him. (laughs) Please text your friend Tom York. Text Tom York. But let's talk about Dirk Gently before I release you guys into the streets of Los Angeles, which is on BBC America. Yes. Uh, And what is the time? What is the time? Is it 9 p.m. on October 22nd? October 22nd at 9 p.m. on, yes, BBC, on BBC America. America. Great. And just sort of, I, I know the trailer is available online, but I guess just a quick nickel pitch to what the show is. So people, I, I have a feeling it's a difficult show to describe. It very much is. But um, how how was the show pitched to you guys? It kind of wasn't pitched. I read the pilot script. Yeah. In fact, my manager couldn't. She couldn't describe it. Uh, she said it's based on a Douglas Adams novel. That was about all. She's like, it's really weird. I don't know what to make of it. I think you'll get it. <laughs> <laughs> I read it and I I got it, but I don't know that I could describe yeah, it's not like it. You could it's, pitch Hitchhiker's Guide to someone. No, it's. I mean, at its core, I suppose it's a detective story. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it I've... is a mystery that takes place over the course of the season, with um, a variety of of elements that are all in a mix to con- that are all connected to the core of what the case is mm. driven by and sort of uh, uh, I'm, I'm lost I mean already. it is, it is it I mean Dirk, Dirk Gently is at the heart of the story in the sense that all of this activity is sort of surrounding him mm. yeah and he's trying to solve this this murder of um, a billionaire. That was terrible. No, no. We 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 will get better at this. We will. <laughs> um, Dirk Gently. Dirk Gently's holistic detective agency, to use the full title, is um, about a detective who is really, really bad at detecting. He's terrible at his mm. job, but he he has this kind of superpower. So he receives intuitions and messages from the universe that show him how completely, seemingly unrelated things are actually connected. Mm. And when he takes on a case the universe will eventually lead him to the solution. But because he doesn't know what to do with any of these messages or connections that he receives, he needs help, hence the detective agency that he's trying to form, I guess. And the universe tells him that Todd Brotsman is the guy who must help him. Now, you're going to have to call in your theatre training to remember how to say that in a fresh way the 60th time that you have to say that by the end of next week. I have been practising. And I need to shorten it, right? You know, it's harder when you're doing junkets and you only have like three minutes. I know, I know. I basically say it's about detectives solving a Solving the murder of a, million, a billionaire. No, I feel like I feel like most <laughs> that's the people, easy way to describe it. I feel like a lot of people who listen to this podcast probably have read a Douglas Adams book or yeah, two. I have a feeling, but he's. I'm always fascinated by his work, and because so much of the voice of those books are sort of 
it's that sort of meta voice in the book that's mm. very difficult to translate a lot of times when you're putting it on you know it's like even the and and the versions of hitchhiker's guide the couple like the old british version and then the the more recent film from 10 years ago or whenever it was they're fun but it's just like it's so hard to capture everything that's douglas adams because he has such a specific point of view so were you guys able to how were you able to sort of rein some of that in and throw it onto the TV. Well, Max Landis has said you can't adapt Douglas Adams because of that, because most of the books are his observations and his take on life. Yeah. So there's not enough action, character and plot in that. So Max has kind of taken the essence of, certainly the essence of the Dirk character, and then the essence of the world that Douglas creates, and and gone full freaky on it, full weird, which is brilliant because actually... Mm. the weirder he's made it the more authentically Adams it's felt and I because I I read the books and then I I read the pilot and I just went this is kind of this is the next mystery Douglas would have written did you say did Max write that Max wrote the pilot oh yeah Yeah, Max Max has written the whole season okay well that makes a lot of sense yeah I mean like Max's brain seems he just gets that world and he is a super fan of those books anyway so he's just taken the the essence and, and put it on the screen, and in fact, there are loads of Easter eggs for anyone who is like a huge Douglas Adams fan. They're not going to be disappointed that we haven't completely adapted the books. That's great. And Max's brain is so uh, it's vi- it he his brain is that universe. Like it, it really is. He do you remember, operates do you remember in that him way. trying to explain to us? Mm. Well, not trying. He explained the whole of the first season to us, and I just remember going, "I what? I don't. I can't yeah. follow that." You need to see it visually. Yes. He's got it all in his I, head. I totally, yeah, that makes all the sense in the world to me. Like, I don't, I, I think it would be a challenge for most people to do that, but I completely, but, but, of, it makes but Max can do it. Like, Ma- <laughs> yeah. Max yeah. Is, Max has that kind of twisted genius yeah. that, genius. Genius. Oh, there Well, it yeah, is. it's interesting. Yeah. He is brilliant. He's brilliant. He is brilliant. There is no question. Brilliant. Yeah, Max, I don't know anyone in in my life that has a brain that operates that. No, way. Max is a, Max is a brilliant tornado. Yeah, Com- completely. <laughs> he yeah. is a tornado that happens to be brilliant. Yeah, yeah. But you you've see, had him on the show, I'm assuming. Yeah, yeah. He's been on. Yeah. You see the show through Elijah's character's eyes, so that's the way in. It is a it is a real world in which bizarre things happen. But as an audience, I think Max has made sure you're always taken care of. Mm-hmm. So you so if if Todd mm. Brotsman doesn't know what's going on, the audience won't. And when Todd does, the audience does. That's a very it's like good he's point. the guide. And the frustrating thing about Max is he probably wrote the whole season in two days. Yeah, he, like, has, he just he has really the fast. whole thing held in his head. I mean, like yeah, he just pisses it out and goes, "There it is. It's perfect. It's done. Bye. <laughs> I'm a genius by now." It's like it's like it's like Mozart dictating to Salieri. <laughs> Where is this coming from? <laughs> it's like he's dictating from the heavens. Uh, but uh, Dirk Gently, October 22nd, BBC America, 9 p.m. This has been a very enlightening conversation. <laughs> it has. And I yeah. appreciate uh, you uh, taking time to talk about weird stuff. Uh, and you're you're both geniuses. No! Stop it. No, you're a genius. No, you're a genius. No, you're a genius. You're a genius. Okay, no, I'm a genius. I'm a genius Stop for it. accepting your genius. <laughs> <laughs> I'm totally a genius at accepting that. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Enjoy Chris. your burrito, everyone. And anything else you want to plug while you're here? Anything else at all? Oh, go see The Greasy Strangler. Yeah. All right. I need to Do see you know that. about The Greasy Strangler? No. It's a, f- a film I produced that's out now on VOD and in theaters. What did you, what, what is, oh, what's the film about? Oh, it's a... Uh, it looks it's, amazing. It's a, it's a very twisted comedy about a father and a son who still live together beyond the point at which they should. Uh, the father runs a disco walking tour of Los Angeles. There's In the background of the, of the film, there's a, a man who covers his naked body in grease and kills people called the Greasy Strangler, who may be the father. Um, and then there's also sort of a love triangle that establishes between the father-son and one of the patrons of the walking tour. That's the movie. So it's, that's so it's not for kids. Not for kids. <laughs> it's, um, it's, it's by a filmmaker called Jim Hosking. He's a, a British director. It's his first feature film, but he's been making shorts and commercials and incredible work for a long time. And it was one of these opportunities to get behind something that probably wouldn't have gotten made because right. of how fucked up it is and... Just kind of gross and weird and undefinable, um, and it's brilliant. But the trailer looks amazing. So it's really great. I can't the wait Greasy to see Strangler. It. So what we've learned is uh, <laughs> contribute, collaborate, pursue what you want for you. Uh, fuck the audience. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> <And> really good. <laughs> that's remarkable. We've covered some. Wow.
And stay present, folks. Stay present and stay present. <laughs> and stay which is, present. Which, by the way, this is going to blow your mind a little bit. That's how we end every podcast. We say, enjoy your burrito, which means live in the present. That's oh, I love that. Full circle. <laughs> Woo. It's a perfect circle. We're geniuses. <laughs> We're geniuses. Now leaving Nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito. Behind every successful business is a story, and some of them might surprise you. Like how Chobani's first yogurt factory was discovered on a piece of junk mail, or how the founder of the multi-million dollar cosmetics brand Drunk Elephant was told by everyone, including her own mother, that the name sounded like a dive bar. I'm Guy Raz, and on my show How I Built This, I talk to founders behind the world's biggest companies and brands to learn the real stories of how they built them. In each episode, you'll hear entrepreneurs share moments of doubt and failure and talk about how they were able to overcome them on their way to the top. How I Built This is like a masterclass in innovation and creativity, a how-to guide for navigating life's challenges from the people who've done it all. Follow How I Built This on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to How I Built This early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus.